You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. For us to understand today, we are going to need some context from last week. So, so like you know, as the shows kind of say, like previously in the Gospel of Mark, right? That's basically what I got to do real quick here. Okay, where we have just left off with Jesus is that he had just had another run-in with the religious leaders. Now, the religious leaders are made up of Jewish leaders that are made up of different portions, different groups of the Jewish faith. So, there's the the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. And all of them were Jews, but they had just a little bit different take on the Mosaic law or the Torah. That's another name for it. And all of them had particular views on this law, and they became very legalistic about them. And and several of them became hungry for power as a result of those legalistic views. So when Jesus came on the scene, he began to challenge all of that, all of their legalistic stuff, right? Anything associated with the legalism and the law. So he would challenge things like all the extra laws that they would add on top of God's law. Uh, he would challenge their views on the Sabbath or who, who they could hang out with, unclean people, poor people, widows, orphans, children, lots of different stuff. He challenged it all. And, and what he would do is as he challenged that, he would begin to reject their ideas. And so they began to reject Jesus during his ministry. Well, the most recent run-in that he had with them that we've come up with so far is in Mark chapter 11. And there in Mark chapter 11, we see that Jesus enters what's called the temple. It's the holiest place of all the Jews. And what he does is he enters the temple. He turns over all the money-changing tables right in the middle of the temple. And the reason that he did that was because the Jewish leaders were actually abusing the poor, and they were upcharging for sacrifices that they were selling in the temple. So, So Jesus not only blows up this religious leader's illegal animal sacrifice ring thing happening in the temple... But he actually chooses to side with and to stand up for the poor. And by doing this, Jesus brings the volatile relationship that he had with the religious leaders to a head. Which is why we read in Mark chapter 11 that it says this. It said that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So so the religious leaders had enough of Jesus. They're like, I'm sick of this guy, right? He's messing with all of our power, what we're trying to get accomplished. So they made it their goal to get rid of him one way or the other. The only problem was it says that Jesus was beloved by the people. They were amazed at his teaching. So to out and out kill Jesus would make the religious leaders look really bad. It also would turn the people more against them and it would make Jesus to be made out to be a martyr so they still wouldn't, be made, still wouldn't be powerful because Jesus would be up against them even from the dead. So the only way they could lessen the favor of Jesus with the people was to discredit him. They had to show the people that, you know what, this guy is just full of it, he's fake, he's a liar, he's, making, he's a blasphemer, he's making up false things about God. So any and all of that, those things would cause the people to turn on Jesus and then make the religious leaders look like the good guys again. So what you see at the end of chapter 11, and then as it begins in chapter 12, is that the leaders, the religious leaders, are trying to test Jesus, 
trying to trick him, trying to discredit him, trying to make him say something that would make the people move against him. But Jesus, not only in his quick responses, not only is he refuting the religious leaders, but in doing so, he's actually encouraging other people. He's encouraging the outcast, men and women that oftentimes are pushed aside or used as religious pawns by the Jewish leaders in this legalistic game that they're trying to play. So we needed all of that. So we needed all that I just talked about to be able to set up where we're gonna find ourselves in chapter 12 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, your Crossroads Grace apps, Mark chapter 12 is where we'll be at. So if you wanna open up there, that would be great. Rochelle, do me a favor, put that link in there for Crossroads Online so they can go to Mark chapter 12 is where we'll be at. So after Jesus uh, deflects a couple of attacks by the religious leaders after this temple cleansing thing, uh, then we get to read this in, in verse one. It says that Jesus then began to speak to them, that's the religious leaders, right? Speak to them in parables. So again, I'll, I'll, I'll call time out for just a second. Real quick, a parable is a made-up story to illustrate a truthful message and drive a point home. And in many, many cases, they were used to, to speak about the religious leaders without directly speaking to them. So what you'll see next is, is actually what Jesus is gonna speak about. He weaves together one heck of a story. Okay, like a crazy, crazy story. So let's, let's read this story together, starting in verse, the second part of verse one. Here's Jesus starting this parable. He says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. All right, so this is known as the parable of the tenants. Parable of the tenants. And, and, these, and, and there are actually four gospel accounts in the Bible. And, and these accounts, these gospel accounts are, are where these people are capturing the life of Jesus from people's different perspectives. So for instance, Matthew was written by one of Jesus' disciples. His name is Matthew. John was the, the disciple that was closest to Jesus. That's his account. Luke was written by a historian. And so I'll be a bit of a theologian by the name of Luke but he was hired by a government official named Theophilus to give a historical account of Jesus's life. So Luke would go and interview people, eyewitnesses talk with them. That's how he created his gospel. And then Mark was written by a man by the name of Mark who was a follower of Jesus, but he is actually capturing the apostle Peter's words into this gospel account. So four gospels in this parable, the parable of the tenants is found in three out of those four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke which means that it is very significant. It made a significant impression on the people that heard it from Jesus for the first time. But in order to understand what Jesus is talking about in this parable, we have to pick it apart a little bit at a time, okay? So the first thing that we see is they say we have a man who planted a vineyard, okay? He, he describes it as, as planting a vineyard. But this is not like your backyard hobby vineyard that you plant and make wine and put it in a bottle and put an Avery label on it and write, you know, awesome stuff or whatever. Like, that's not what we're talking about, okay? Uh, here's the deal. This seemed to be more professional operation because it says that there was a wine press there, there was a watchtower, dug a pit around it. When, it. when it surprised me, there was a pole barn on the property that had like a pool table and darts and bocce ball in it, you know. This is swanky is what I'm saying. This is a swanky place. So with all these details about the vineyard, we can, uh, we can assume that the vineyard owner, the man, is very wealthy, might even have other properties that he's a part of because 
it says that he actually moved off of this vineyard and he moved someplace else and allowed some farmers, some tenants to watch it and take care of it. So this is where we in the Central Valley are like, dude, I finally understand a parable. I get this, you know? Like we, especially if you're a farmer in the house today, because this is somewhat kind of known as what we, we would call outsource farming <coughs> or farm management if, if we live in the valley. So here's what happens is that uh, an owner of the land will, will allow someone else to grow farmland, grow crops on the land, almonds, walnuts, cherries, whatever you wanna grow on there, right? In exchange for either a lease of the land where you give money to use the land or you get a portion of the profits of the crop that's produced on the land. So, so, so here's the scene that Jesus kind of sets up. The vineyard owner, he sets up this vineyard, everything ready to go, then allows these tenants to live there and to grow the far, do the farming process on his land. But here's how it kind of switches from Central Valley farming to when Jesus was, uh, was around. You see, when the crop was, began to come in, began to grow, the owner would send a representative to claim some of the crops of that land in order for him to maintain ownership of the property. So without any proof that the, the crops are coming in, they, that would give legal rights to the tenant that was on there to keep the land, even though it wasn't their property. So he had to go and get this crop to prove that it was still his land. So, so knowing all that, I want you to notice what happens next. Look at verse two. It says, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. So, so the vineyard owner sends a servant, a representative, to go and get some fruit from this land that was rightfully his. But not wanting to give up the vineyard, the tenants decide to beat up the servant and then send him back with like a bloody note taped to him. I don't know how they did it. Like with his tail tucked between his legs back to the vineyard owner. So these dudes are like bullies. They're thugs. And now they're dishonoring the, vi the vineyard owner who gave them the property to have in the first place, his family, and they're holding his property hostage. But things only progress from there, believe it or not. Look at verse four. Verse four, we get to continue, and it says, um, it says, then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them beat others they killed. So, so the man sends other servants and they're met with the same sort of abuse and disgrace and violence and even some of them, he says, are killed. They're murdered. I mean, guys, this is like a drug cartel meets a Viking warrior stuff. Like, crazy is this? You know, like imagine that for a second. But, but for whatever reason, the vineyard owner is, is very patient. He's trying to be gracious, even generous with these tenants. I'm not sure if I could do that. You know, one dude dies, like, that's a big deal. You know, like, multiple, we got a problem. Because this is happening over the course of about three-year period of time. If you think about customs and the, the cycle of crops coming in, we're talking about three years. But then look what happens at verse 6. Verse 6 is this. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. So, so by now, this is, we're going into year four of this saga, and now we're at the rising climax of this story. 
And isn't it true, like, all of us are, like, like reading this as if it was, like, a, like a cheesy horror movie? You know what I'm talking about? Like, in the cheesy horror movie, like, the scared group of people, they always find themselves at night in the middle of the woods, and they come across an abandoned house, you know, and they decide to go in, because that's a good idea, right? And then everybody in the audience is like, don't go upstairs. Why? Because the bad guy's always upstairs. And where do they go? Upstairs, right? And then the bloodbath, the whole nine right? So, so, so we see this owner, he's like exhausted all of his options, he's out of servants, he's out of representatives, the people that are injured, like, I ain't going back. Like, you know, like, he's done. The only person he has left is his son, a son that he loved. Even knowing the danger that was ahead of him, he still sent his loving son because he says, they will respect my son. And all of us are cringing at this point, aren't we? Because we're like, dude, like, we know what's going to happen. Don't go upstairs, right? You know, we all know. So we look at verse 7. Look at what it says. Verse 7 says, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I think it's really interesting if you think about details. The, the vineyard owner had built this watchtower, which means that you go to the top of it, you look around, make sure things are okay. It means the tenants got to the top of the watchtower, look out, and they see the sun coming. These crazy owners see the sun coming towards them. Instead of giving in, they double down. They think, you know what? If we can knock off the sun, we can cut the legs out from the owner, and we could finally be able to claim this property for ourselves because he ain't getting any crops from us. No, 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 right? And maybe he'll just leave us alone and we'll be scot-free. So they kill the son. They throw him out of his own vineyard like a piece of trash. And then Jesus finishes this parable by saying, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus says that the owner will have no other choice other than to kill the tenants. They've made their choices. They've killed his one and only son, and so now they're going to have to pay for what they've done. And this isn't unjust. This isn't malicious. This isn't malice, right? They broke the law. So the father had every right by biblical law. Maybe you remember some of these, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, like, those, like that type of law, had every right to avenge the death of his son. And so he says, He did. But do you know what's more amazing, actually? Is that instead of boarding it up, instead of selling it, instead of cutting his losses all together with his old vineyard, the owner finds new tenants. Despite all that happens, he gives another tenant the privilege of living in that vineyard and enjoying all that he gave and all that he made. Now, you're probably wondering at this point, like, what in the world just happened, okay? I thought I came to church, going to hear a nice little churchy message, got some nightingale upstairs, feeling pretty good, and a Stephen King story just broke out. Like, what is happening in this place, right? Let, let me just help you out. Let me explain to you what just happened. I need to tell you a few things. First thing is, you have to remember, let's remember, who was the audience that Jesus was speaking to? It was the religious leaders. And they were intensely focused on discrediting Jesus. 
And so they're hanging on every word that he's saying. They're trying to catch him in a screw-up, so they're listening very, very closely. And, and so knowing that will make the deeper parts of the story make that much more sense. So, so just like any like great Broadway play or any like great theatrical thing, you always want to know who the actors are that are playing the different parts. Well, let me, let me introduce the actors to you today. So the vineyard owner is actually played by God. And the vineyard is Israel or the people of God. The tenants are played by the religious leaders and the servants are the prophets of God. And the vineyard's owner's son is Jesus. So Jesus is saying that God has given the people of Israel, right? The people of Israel, all of his, all of his vineyard, right? All, of his, all, these, all the laws, all the things, right? You got all the things. And, and, and then the tenants, these are the religious leaders, they're supposed to take care of that. They're supposed to help the people, teach the people, you know, explain it to them. They're, they're, and, and then when the representatives come, who are the prophets of God, those are the people that God speaks to directly to direct the people, when they come, the tenants, all of a sudden, they abuse the prophets and they kill the prophets because they don't like what they said. So they literally got rid of them. This is real stuff. Here's three examples. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he was ki killed by King Manasseh, who sawed him in half. Jeremiah was stoned to death by the people that he was actually telling what God said because they didn't like what he had to say. And then Zechariah was a prophet who was killed by King Jehoiakim because he was speaking against the construction of the second temple. So, so three prophets that were all killed. And then Jesus, he foreshadows his own death as the son in the parable who is murdered by the tenants who are the religious leaders. And he reiterates this by saying this. He says, haven't you, religious leaders, read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus isn't making things up. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23 when he's speaking here. And what he's saying is that Jesus, who is the cornerstone, that's Jesus, is going to be rejected by the builders, that would be the religious leaders, and they ultimately are going to, to kill him. And so Jesus tells the story, and all of a sudden it begins to fade to black. The parable is finished. Verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, now, here's what I want us to look very closely at to try to understand. I want you to look at the religious leader's response. The religious leader said what? It says, they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They knew it. They knew it. They knew it. They knew Jesus was talking all kinds of smack on them, talking trash to them right in front of them, right? They knew it. But here's the deal. This is what it also meant. If they knew that, if they knew that he knew that they knew that he knew, right, this whole thing, then they also had to understand what he was saying. So they had to know that the vineyard meant Israel. They had to know the tenants were them. They had to know the servants were the prophets. They had to know that the son was the Messiah. Yet notice what happened. It says, they left him and went away. Instead of repenting for what they had done to God's vineyard, 
In seeing Jesus as the Messiah, they simply left him and went away. Gang, I just need to be straight with you right now. I want you to hear me. We live in a world that has a walkaway mentality when it comes to God. It's a world that, that I believe, I believe, is able to connect the dots between what God says and what they're doing, and they understand that they're, they're polar opposites. I just believe it. Like, we know what God says about murder. We know what God says about loving our neighbor. We know what God says about debt. We know what God says about true love. We know what God says about generosity. We know what God says about relationships. We know what God says about so many things. But just like the religious leaders, instead of repenting of our sins, admitting we're wrong, God is right, we walk away. We complicate the obvious so much because we'll talk ourselves in circles so we can rationalize ourselves out of moral reality. We we, we are just like the religious leaders. Because as I said last week, we would rather kill Jesus than follow Jesus. Like, we, the cost of saying no to the world and yes to Jesus is too great in our minds. And, and I believe that what this boils down to, this whole thing, it boils down to what Jesus says to religious leaders in, in, in verse 24, Mark 12, where Jesus says, Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Can, can we... Can you just read that again and, and, and think of that? Because the power of what Jesus just said here could literally change your life, could literally have the biggest impact you've ever had on your life. The reason the religious leaders were wrong was because they didn't know God's word and they didn't understand God's power. Guys, my friends, you and I, we do the very same thing. Guys, here's the deal. We will dismiss this book right here. We'll say it's out of date, it's inconsistent with reality because it says to do things and not to do things that are countercultural. We, we will treat God like he's an Avenger, and like a superhero Avenger who has no real power, and when we're done with him, we'll click him off like Disney Plus subscription. We'll just forget about him. And when we do that, we have literally no idea what we're doing. We have no idea of the life altering, eternity-changing, amazing possibilities that God can do if we would just read these pages. Like, we have no idea of how powerful God is and how much we are missing out on what he wants to do in our life and through us when we dismiss him. But I'll tell you what, I wanna be very clear with you this morning. I want you to know that God is all-powerful. His word is infallible, and his love is unconditional, okay? Oh, you don't believe me? Oh, let's talk. God is all-powerful. There is nothing that can contain him, nothing that can describe him. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He created the world by and everything you see by just speaking it into existence. He causes the winds to blow, the rain to fall, the sun to shine. He is beyond time, above time, above our comprehension. He is in everything. God is all-powerful. Oh, God's word is infallible? Yes, it is. God's word is a a gift given to all mankind through ordinary men guided by the extraordinary Holy Spirit. In this book is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. It has the power to correct, rebuke, soothe, heal all at the same time. In it is found the words of life that point to the eternal life found in Jesus. It has been scrutinized and analyzed by more people in all of history, yet stands the test of time. Its words will transform the hardest heart and will point you to 
Jesus with every page that you turn, God's word is infallible. In God's love, oh, it is unconditional. I remember reading that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That God loves us so much that he allowed his son to be murdered on a cross for your sins and my sins. That God loves us so much that he says that when we know Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from his love. And he says the only way to know true love is to know God because God is love. God's love is unconditional. Right. And you know what? The religious leaders missed it. And you want to know what? Jesus doesn't want you to miss it. He doesn't want you to miss it. But I'll tell you the saddest part is that we don't have any frame of reference, do we, for what that could look like. Because here's what we'll do. We'll dismiss Jesus so quickly, won't we? We'll say, well, of course, Jesus got it all right. He was God. It seems, seems very few and far between that we can see a tangible example of what true Jesus-following faith could look like. But Jesus, he oftentimes used, he used people that didn't make the highlight real to all of a sudden show us how we're supposed to do things. Could have been children, could have been mute, deaf, injured, unclean, whatever. Jesus always made a point to have the outcast be the standout in the crowd so he could say, hey, hey look at them. They get it. Do, do what they're doing. And here in chapter 12, Jesus gives us this really cool example uh, to us to be able to follow. So if you jump ahead with me to verse 38, I can't preach the whole chapter. We'll be here till about Tuesday, so we're not gonna be able to do that. Y'all are gonna have to do that on your own. But when we get to verse 38, here's what I'm gonna tell you. Uh, it's almost fitting what Jesus does here because he prefaces his interaction with this unlikely hero in verse 38 with kind of one more like, Parting shot to the religious leaders. Check this out, if you would, verse 38. It says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. They have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. <laughs> But instead of belaboring the point, right, instead he decides to turn his attention to a very unlikely person to focus his and his disciples' attention to. Instead of looking at the religious leaders and beating them up for all the things that they're doing wrong, Jesus then changes their attention to, to the faithful who are getting it right. And I want you to look at verse 41 where he does this. Verse 41 says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So Jesus finds himself in the temple. Uh, I couldn't, the temple again, I couldn't imagine that there might be a few stragglers that remember his temple rage from the day before. And uh, good thing Jesus doesn't could care, care less what they thought because he still was there. But this time he finds himself in the treasury part of the temple. Now, this is also known as the court of women. Now, the court of women was a, a communal area, a common area where both men and women could come and uh, they would gather and bring their offerings there. Here's a more historic or actually a, a ruined picture of that same location. This is an actual picture of that. But the treasury is made up of 13 wooden boxes that were positioned all around the area and they had these trumpets on the top of them that the money would funnel down into. Imagine at the mall back in the day when you put the quarter in and it would go woo, woo, you know, all the way down the toilet bowl, right? That kind of thing. 
this is smaller, but just the same kind of deal. But since it was brass on the top, you could hear the coins going into the trumpet all the way down when they go into the boxes. So as Jesus was sitting there with his disciples, watching people give their offerings to God, he couldn't help but notice someone different making their way up to the coffers. In fact, he probably could hear someone different. You see, this widow steps up to the, uh, to the offering and, and she places in, 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 instead of the large banging sound of lots of money coming in, it's just simply a couple of small things that Jesus hears. The kind of, the kind of sound that would be actually, you'd ignore if you weren't really paying attention, it was that in- insignificant. But yet to Jesus, it was a heavenly sound. And Jesus makes a point to point her out. Verse 43, listen with me. It says, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. The woman only had a couple of, couple of small tin coins in the offering. And when she did that, it caused Jesus to stop in his tracks and to point to her. Why? Because she got it. Jesus, the religious leaders, they gave out of, their, out, of, out of their excess, out of their abundance, and she gave out of the purity of her poverty. She understood the heart of following God and not the, not the pomp and circumstance of being religious. Jesus was blown away by her pure generosity that, this, that, that he makes a point to bring all of his disciples over. She elevates this, the faith of an older, poor, widowed woman to demonstrate the true devotion, what it really looks like to follow God, to be a believer. Isn't it interesting? It is the poor that taught the rich about faith. And herein lies the perspective of Jesus I want us to see today. That Jesus wants nothing less than all of us. Now, now the religious leaders, they, they only gave a part of themselves to God. They gave the part of themselves that would in turn give them power and influence and wealth and all of those things, but they didn't have the ability to give God everything about themselves. So what about us? What are we giving God? What what can we take away from today? And, and as I step back from this message and finishing writing this a couple of days, I, I couldn't help but get stuck on the dichotomy of the two groups that we're talking about here. The religious leaders and then this woman, this woman in the temple, they just got stuck in my head. And what I couldn't get past is this question, is what was it that separated the woman from the leaders? What, what was it? And the low-hanging answer, of course, is faith. Her faith was pure, and it was completely given over to God. And you know what? You're absolutely right. It's absolutely true. But I couldn't help but think that there was, there was something more, something that was underneath that faith layer that was holding it all together. And so when I review my messages, I, I print it out. I walk around in my neighborhood. I edit it. I talk to myself. My neighbors think I'm crazy. I am. But you know, like, it's, it's just what I do. And as I'm walking around the neighborhood, all of a sudden it hit me. You see, Paul actually tells us the difference between the religious leader and this woman. So I'm gonna read this to you, but it's not gonna be on the screens, it's not gonna be anywhere. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to close your eyes. Nothing crazy, nothing weird. Just close your eyes. I want you to hear God's word, and I want you to see if you can make the connection 
the thing that I discovered that was missing. So close your eyes and listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. It's not proud, it's not dishon it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So did you catch it? love. Love is the difference. The woman had genuine love. The religious leaders, they were clanging cymbals. They were gongs. They were, they were making such a noise with their religious piety and their self-righteousness. They were doing all the right things, but they were missing out on the most important thing, love. But this woman, all she had was love. All she had, she gave all she had out of love. And that's what Jesus took note of. It was her faith in love that made the most noise. Not her money. That was secondary. It was her love. It all comes down to Jesus wants nothing less than all of us. So this week as you consider that idea as you reread Mark chapter 12 this week on your own and those verses that I didn't get to, challenge you with a couple things. Maybe this week, maybe you need to begin to give. Maybe you need to give through faith. If this isn't your church home, you don't have to give here, but if this is your church home, begin to give, to trust what God has got in your life and help us with the work that's happening here through God's power. But also, I want you to do this. Consider the power of God and the power of his word this week. Don't miss out on that. Don't be religious, be faithful in love towards Jesus. Now the cool part is you get a chance to worship here in a second. So don't you dare log off and don't you dare take off, the best is yet to come. I'm gonna pray for us and I wanna challenge you as you worship to give just that little bit more to God because Jesus wants nothing less than all of us. Heavenly Father, Lord God, your word is alive and active, you are powerful, your word is infallible, and your love is unconditional. We believe that. And so, Spirit of God, would you move in this place as we worship you now through song? Would you hear these words, not as just words that we sing, but that they might be actual words from our soul to you? 
And may you hear these words. May they be a blessing to you. But God, would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you move in us so that we can hear you, that we can know you more, and that we can give you more of who we are? Thank you for that widowed woman that showed us so much about what faith and love looks like. May we have a fraction of that now as we come to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.